If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. <laughs> Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. There you go. Hey, boys and girls, moms and dads, welcome to Louisiana Hayride. Thanks for joining us here. Little girl Loretta Lynn on the bandstand right now. Let's give her a big round of applause. Climbing up the charts here. Uh, Loretta Lynn named uh, 132 on Rolling Stone's top 200 singers of all time. I love Loretta Lynn. I love the I love, great writer. Vocalist? I don't know. Um... I'm thinking of June Carter. Anyway, she's pretty uh, homely, you know. She's got that good sound. <laughs> she no, I I I totally understand for the songwriting and and such, but you know, when you're hearing pure vocalists, I think you know after playing almost 200 of these songs, I think we've been shammed here. <laughs> All right, enough of that. Well, and, I mean, we skipped Danzig, so I think we're <laughs> we're we're far from the bottom of the barrel oh, of that list. <laughs> you're starting to notice we're not hitting all of them. Will uh, you weren't supposed to tell anybody? Good for you. Womp, all right, womp. so. There you go. All right. But, and you know, and a great movie. If you've never seen The Coal Miner's Daughter, it's, uh, it's incredible. All right. Let's move on and I'll continue digging myself out of this coal. All right. Uh, big day going on. I'm, I'm trying to avoid this because I don't want to talk about it until something actually happens. Um, but what has happened is Donald Trump has, uh, well, I'm looking at a picture of him now, uh, surrounded. Uh, he's the center person with two on either side, lawyers, I'm guessing. And then, uh, a couple of police officers standing. Standing behind, so there he is. Um, uh, I guess uh, being read the charges and such, and we understand has pled uh, not guilty to all uh, 35, 34 charges. Anyway, let's get this over with, and we can move on with the show. Uh, here's Julie Walker from the Associated Press. Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is the keynote speaker for the Trump rally they plan to hold by the courthouse. NYPD Police Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell. The NYPD is prepared to ensure that everyone is able to have their voices heard peacefully while exercising their First Amendment rights. But she says... I will remind everyone that violence and destruction are not part of legitimate lawful expression. Meanwhile, reporters, including the Associated Press, have been lined up overnight to get into the courthouse for Trump's arraignment on criminal charges stemming from 2016 hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, something Trump denies. Outside Manhattan Criminal Court, Julie Walker, New York. So right now he's um, he's still in the courthouse and we're just seeing a shot of uh, a bunch of New York City uh, police officers. I understand every single one is working today, uh, but there's and we understand there's um, some protests in the park ac- across the road, but we're not really seeing anything of that. Uh, but apparently now uh, he is still inside. And when he comes out, we will talk about that glorious walk from the. I don't know what from the doors to his car. Uh, and then, of course, the big show tonight when he gets back to Florida and holds that big old American rally. So, uh, again, uh, try and avoid this like the plague when something actually happens. We'll actually um, 
try to bring you it, and we'll move on from there. All right, what else we got going? Oh, uh, congratulations to Finland, officially the 31st nation in NATO. Uh, good for them. And uh, just as Australia is banning TikTok on its government devices, something that, of course, uh, we have all done here uh, a while ago. Uh, also, on that note, going to have Jeff Semple on, investigative reporter from Global News. He's got a great series on Global this week and um, on the website as well. You can access it at 900CHML.com. Uh, and a great story interviewing Chinese Canadians. These are people like every other immigrant came here for a better life and are being coerced into spying for Beijing uh, from uh, police and other such organizations. Uh, Chinese communist char- uh, communi- uh, Chinese Communist Party police and those police stations we've been talking about in Canada. And um, the families have been talking about this forever and nobody seems to be listening to them. However, uh, we have people like the Prime Minister standing up and calling racism whenever we ask questions into interference. Um, these are Chinese Canadians who want their stories to be told uh, and are having their families harassed back in China if they don't do uh, what the homeland asks them to do. We're going to talk about uh, this with Jeff Semple, who's got a great report on Global News, uh, a series of reports on all of this and the interference that is going on. And it's 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 sad that when uh, the Prime Minister by journalists is asked asked about um, uh, the interference in Canadian elections by the Chinese Communist Party, he brings up the word racism, when in fact that is exactly what is harming these Chinese Canadians. They cannot come out and tell their story. They're being labeled as 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 those who, who follow the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. So here's the racism that is not that is not being solved simply because the stories are not being told. Uh, the government is not being transparent on all of this uh, and certainly not listening to Chinese Canadians who have been warning about this sort of thing for an awful long time. Uh, that is all coming up. Hope you hang around. And again, as I mentioned, two hours from now, your chance to play Hammerhead Trivia for some uh, great uh, cash and prizes. Sorry, nope, just the prizes. Also, uh, the space uh, Canadian, uh, Sp- Jeremy Hansen, the next astronaut, Canadian astronaut, to go up in space. What does it take to be a Canadian astronaut? How do you get there? Um, the line forms to the right, not quite that easy. We'll talk about that journey and this miss, this uh, mission being a lot more dangerous than people think. It's the farthest distance traveled by astronauts as they go around the far side of the moon and back. We'll talk about that uh, all coming up in the first hour. The city of Hamilton, in partnership with Bird Canada, uh, will launch a new electric scooter, e-scooter pilot program. See up to uh, 450 uh, of these scooters, shared scooters, just like the bike program. Available to uh, rent and ride in wards 1, 2, 3, and 13, uh, complementing the city's existing bike share program. And uh, it's kind of a, it's a neat idea. You see it a lot in in other cities as we do uh, with the bike uh, sharing program. However, what's interesting in all of this is uh, yesterday, the other day, Paris announces that it is going to ban uh, the rental of e-scooters. Almost 90% 90 of the votes cast on Sunday favored the ban ban of battery-powered devices, officials' uh, results showed, but under 80%, sorry, under 8% of those eligible turned out to vote. The referendum was called in response to a rising number of people being injured and killed in the e-scooters in the French capital. It's interesting, you know, that's one of the reasons you don't have 
referendums is really the only people that are interested in the issue show up and it can be very swayed. That being said, let, uh, that being said, let's bring in Peter Topolovic, project and program manager for sustainable mobility within the city of Hamilton and with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, that's great to be here. So, Peter, before we get into the launch of this program, which is a great idea, you see this in cities all over, I was just sharing with the audience uh, the news yesterday that Paris has decided to ban the rental of these. Anything to be learned there? They were one of the pilot people and pilot projects in this way back when and the first to bring it up. Anything to be learned from their situation? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, we learned a lot from our European counterparts. There's a lot of differences. The first being that it was unregulated and started with 30,000 units. Wow. Um, later brought down to 15,000, still fairly unregulated. Uh, and so uh, the other thing is it didn't have some of the requirements that we do, like the lock to requirement where you have to walk a unit uh, to a bike rack or a pole. We're also taking a really conservative approach, starting at about 150 units, so much vast difference from Paris, and building up to 350 in the service area. In Ontario, the municipalities have really taken a regulated approach to this, and Paris is one of the cities uh, that took an unregulated approach, and, and I think that's the main difference. And we've seen cities that take regulated approaches have much more success with both bike share and e-scooters. All right, so we've sort of started in the middle of this story, Peter, so I apologize for that. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning and tell us what's going on uh, with the partnership with Bird Canada and what you are launching. Yeah, so we're, we're launching what is quite a much smaller program than, other, than uh, our European counterparts with uh, up to 350 scooters in what is known as the bike share service area in Wards 1, 2, 3, and in Dundas. Uh, so that's that's where it starts. You can rent them just like you rent bike share bikes. You can download the app from uh, Bird Canada. And you can get a membership, and then you can pay as you go, or there's other pricing programs um, for certain individuals. We remember and when that, the bike share... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that, that's good. Yeah, that's the gist of it. <laughs> so we remember when the bike share programs came out, people were concerned about this, that, and the other. Is it very similar that the challenges are the same and some of the concerns are the same? Yeah, it's funny, because I think we had this conversation seven years ago. Um, so <laughs> Absolutely. The bike share pro- yeah, with the bike share program, we've seen a lot of success um, with, again, they're also locked too, so you can lock them anywhere, but you have to lock them up. We're trying to replicate that success with e-scooters. One of the first cities in Ontario to require e-scooters to be locked up instead of just left in place. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of the same challenges as we're dealing with the bike share bike. So I think we've had a lot of experience, and that's where we're taking a slow approach to this. Uh, also, Bird Canada has has launched in a variety of cities now, so they have a lot of operating experience already in Ontario, which I think is also going to benefit us. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the, the, so we want to make sure that no one's parking or riding on sidewalks. We want to make sure that they're you know they're not riding in parks, as an example, and that they're using bike lanes. We want to make sure they understand the safety uh, the safety requirements of using an e scooter, which is different than riding a bike because you're standing versus sitting. And, you know, I mean, just the one issue you brought up about leaving them certain places, I've seen that in other cities and such. Uh, it just seems to be a better business model because I'm sure it would help them uh, keep track of where everything is and, and, and certainly uh, make it a bit more of a, an efficient operation. Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing is that uh, the operators are learning a lot and they don't want to be in a situation where people are complaining about their about their e-scooters. So having a way, like, actually, if you end your trip, uh, e-scooter, you have to take a picture of it to show that you've locked it and put it properly. Hmm. And they're going to be reviewing, and you could be fined if you don't do it properly. So there's a lot of checks in place to make sure that we're not going to have clutter. 
Obviously, safety, Peter, a big issue here. Uh, people may be concerned that uh, helmets, these don't go or these may go too fast where they're riding them and such. What can you tell us about the safety? Yeah, so for these shared scooters that are not purchased by yourself, but you're, you're, you're renting them, um, you have to, uh, 18 years of age or older, you don't need to wear a helmet. So very similar to riding a bike. Right. Uh, but uh, definitely um, the difference here is that when you ride a shared e-scooter, you have to take a safety quiz. And you have to be aware of the safety issues around riding e-scooters, which I think is an added benefit for those who are going to be down in the Abbotsford, Canada. Can anybody just gr- jump on one of these, Peter, and make it happen? You talk, I was just about to ask you about the uh, guidelines or, or lessons to ride them and such. I mean, the kids are great on them, but can anybody just get on these and power up? Well, you, you have to be 16 years of age or older, and if you're 16 to 18, you, ha- you have to wear, or under 18, you have to wear a helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you get the app, you're going to need to put in financial information, of course, and then you need to take the safety quiz. And if you pass the safety quiz, then you can start riding. And the first ride will be in what they call sort of the slow mode, uh, learning mode or beginner mode, uh, where it doesn't take you uh, as fast. Uh, and, and then eventually you can ride at 20 kilometers an hour. In Hamilton, they're speed limited to 20 kilometers an hour. And what about the provincial standard of 24? And what about cost to the city for all of this? How does it get paid for? Who pays for it? Uh, all that sort of thing. Yeah, so in this case, the operator does pay the city a fee to operate in, in the city. The, so the city doesn't actually uh, pay the operator. It's, it's a little bit different than you'd expect as we're getting a service, but they're paying to be here as a, sort of like a permit type fee. What about uh, insurance? Operating contract with them. What about insurance in case something does happen? Uh, insurance uh, the, the, for the rider or insurance for the operator? Bird Canada ha- is insured. And, you know, they're liable for the use of their, of their product. Uh, and I think that's the main one in terms of, uh, what we're, what we're seeing out there with other companies that, you know, they make sure they have a liability insurance if somewhere, something to go awry. And when does this all start, Peter? It's launching right now. So the, the first 150 units are out and people can uh, start riding them and then they'll be ramping up to uh, what we expect to be 350 units in wards one, two, three in Dundas. And then from there, uh, we will be exploring the potential for expansion in other areas of the city. Peter Topolovic with us, project and program manager for sustainable mobility in the city of Hamilton. E-scooters are here. Thank you, Peter. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday we were talking about uh, the brand new uh, brand new Canadian household name uh, and the next Canadian astronaut who will fly up into space, part of the uh, Armitus 2 uh, mission, which will go around the moon and then come back, uh, which is apparently the longest distance uh, that uh, we've traveled in space. Let's talk more about that with Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy. York University with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Nice to be with you. So obviously a pretty exciting day yesterday. Jeremy Hansen announced uh, to join the team and go up around uh, uh, the moon and back. First of all, uh, tell us what you know about Jeremy Hansen. And it, it seems that there's a group of people that are just destined to be astronauts. How do you become an astronaut in Canada, Paul? What is even the journey there? 
Well, it's a long and arduous one, actually. Generally speaking, the uh, three different calls for Canadian astronauts have attracted between five and 10,000 applicants. So that just gives you a bit of a feel for how uh, how challenging it is to get to that last one, two, or what have you. Uh, you've got to have uh, an advanced degree of some description, generally speaking, at least a master's degree, perhaps a PhD, in one of the physical sciences or engineering. You've got to be an accomplished pilot. You don't have to be an Air Force pilot, but certainly that helps because that gives you a lot of flight hours, and that's really important as far as an astronaut is concerned. You've got to have people skills. Uh, you've got to be able to talk to literally anybody and everybody. You've got to be very patient uh, because, you know, when you're in a capsule with three or four other people, literally within touching distance of them, yeah, for uh, 10, 12, or, or 30 or 40 days, you've got to have a lot of those people skills. You put all of that together, physical conditioning obviously has got to be an important part. It's tough to be an astronaut, Scott. It's something that I had never, ever considered. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you bring up a very valid point. Obviously, you, you have to be a brainiac. You have to possess a lot of knowledge. And a lot of people who are that smart perhaps don't have the communication skill. So to have the full, uh, you know, the full picture here, it really is extraordinary. Somebody who is that bright yet can manage people and check off all those boxes that you're speaking of. It is a huge challenge, and uh, this applies to all of the astronaut corps. I mean, you cited Canada, but when we're mm -hmm. talking about NASA astronauts, European Space Agency astronauts, and so on, you've got to have that full suite. And all of the, uh, the classes of astronauts that have been selected over the years, literally, it's, it's like 0.1% of the applicants make it through to the end. So these folks really are the best of the best of the best. I'm sure that's from a film clip somewhere, but I remember <laughs> what it was. <laughs> uh, you, you know, obviously, uh, especially this generation grown up with this sort of thing, anybody who's seen the shuttle series can remember back to the Apollo series, what have you. Um, it seems that we go to space or are shooting something into space all the time, but this is different, isn't it, Paul? And it brings a new set of danger to this. It certainly does, and it brings a whole new set of engineering and technological challenges. You're right. The last 40 years, everybody who's listening has grown up with space shuttle launches and now SpaceX launches. These are to low Earth orbit. These are a few hundred kilometers above the surface of the Earth. Certainly, we've launched a few geostationary satellites. That's out to 25,000 kilometers. But we have not sent humans to the moon 350,000 kilometers away for over 50 years. And quite simply, we've not had the technology to do it. We, we lost that technology after the Apollo, the Saturn V, and so on. We lost it. I, unbelievable. Don't get me started. And only now are we beginning to find that technology, develop that technology again. The space launch system, the most powerful rocket, even more powerful than the Saturn V, it's only flown once. Starship, which is what uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX are going to hang their hat on, hasn't flown yet. So to be able to fly 350,000 kilometers each way to safely keep your astronauts in that radiation-filled environment and so on, big technological challenges. And so this is really uh, – it, it's a return to the 60s, as silly as that sounds. It's not a return to the 80s or the 90s. We didn't do this back then. We haven't done this for over 50 years. It's hard. And is, it, how does, is this the longest journey that astronauts, American astronauts, have been on, the longest distance? Um, by the, the Artemis II's flight 
Queensland calls for something like 6,000 or so kilometres beyond moon, the moon's orbit. So we're not actually going into orbit around the moon. I think you mentioned it before. It's a figure eight. Because of the nature of that figure eight, we will go much further than just the moon's orbit. And that will make it the longest journey point to point, so as to speak, uh, that we have ever engaged in. We've we've been to the moon, uh, as you well know, from Apollo 8 through to Apollo 17 pretty well, but we've never, we've stayed close to the moon, uh, you know, literally an orbit only a few hundred kilometres. The Artemis II flight plan calls for 6,000 or so kilometres beyond lunar orbit, so that is what makes it the longest journey humans have ever undertaken. Why is it doing a figure eight? Um, the, the short answer is expediency. We do not need to orbit the moon on this mission to flight test all of the Artemis II architecture, the environment as far as astronauts are concerned, to be able to pick up the additional data relatively close to the moon. None of that requires us to be in lunar orbit. And so the call was made years ago when they were drawing up Artemis One, Artemis Two, Artemis Three. It's a sequence of learning. The Artemis II mission did not need to go into lunar orbit. It's partially a safety thing. If something happens, they're on a free return trajectory. But Artemis 1 orbited the moon. So been there, done that. We need to now do a few other tests to make sure that the Artemis 3 architecture has been fully verified. Uh, first Canadian to be involved in a lunar mission like this. Uh, because we're on this one, does that mean we don't get to go to the next one where they actually land or they're hoping to? Uh, <laughs> it, it, where do we fit in the that lineup? Is, like, you know, it'd be that, great that to, is, it'd be great to be Jeremy and say, Oh, I won the, tri- I got the trip, but oh no, I missed the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Canada does not have a seat assigned on Artemis 3. So this will be the only Canadian astronaut to fly to the moon in the very near future. However, we are part of the Artemis Accords. Uh, we received this seat because we are building Canada Arm 3 for the Lunar Gateway. So we've bought into the Artemis project, and that's what allowed us the seat. In a similar fashion, we bought into the International Space Station uh, the continuing um, process of maintaining that with Canada Arm 2 and the Dexter robot. That's what led all of led the Canadian Astronaut Corps to have seats at the International Space Station. The last time that was David Saint-Jacques. Mm. I believe, in fact, our next rotation is in 2025 or perhaps 2026. So we should see another Canadian on ISS in the not-so-distant future. When will we see a Canadian set foot upon the moon? I do not believe those negotiations have completed. But because we are a part of Artemis and Lunar Gateway, that is coming but it's not coming for the next trip or probably within the next three or four years. Paul Delaney with us, professor of astronomy, York University, Artemis, and the return to the moon. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. Cheers. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked about this story a lot. Global News has spent weeks uh, speaking to those who have escaped China for Canada who say the Chinese Communist Party's influence extends beyond its country's borders. Some are protesters who are vocal about China's mistreatment of certain groups. Others are not involved in act- activism at all and don't know why they're targeted other than for uh, fleeing China. And, of course, you can see more on this on our website. Uh, at Global's website, you can access it through 900CHML.com. 
um, why Chinese interference is an everyday problem for many Canadians. Quote, they brainwash people. Talking more about all of this, Jeff Semple, senior broadcast digital journalist and senior correspondent with Global News. And, of course, you can watch this on Global News tonight. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Yeah, doing well, thanks. Great to be with you. We've, we've talked about this issue and the many different layers to this onion, and this is one that is not until you guys have started and many people have started talking about it recently. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about it. How bad is this situation with uh, the Chinese Communist Party um, trying to uh, interfere with the life of Chinese Canadians who are living here? Yeah, I mean, when you talk to those Chinese Canadians and members of the Chinese diaspora, including, you know, particularly um, minority groups that are persecuted within China. So, you know, the Uyghur or Falun Gong, Tibetans, um, and as you noted, really anyone um, of um, Chinese descent who is here in Canada speaking out against the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, they basically say that they have been raising the alarm about this for years and you know in many ways feel like they are finally being listened to now or certainly they hope that they will be um really for the first time because the you know all of these recent revelations uh, through our reporting and others that have uncovered uh, the government of china interfering in canadian elections and interfering in the lives of, of ordinary canadians so you know the intimidation and the harassment and the surveillance, according to members of the Chinese diaspora in Canada, is very real and for some of them is, is part of their daily lives here. Why do we, uh, why is this coming out more now? Why have we not listened? Because again, we've talked to various organizations over the years who've expressed this, but it, it seems to fall on deaf ears in the government. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good point. And I mean, part of that, I think, uh, is because, you know, certainly, you know, a lot of the people that we've spoken to, have some pretty heart-wrenching stories. Um, you know, one woman who's a Falun Gong follower um, found out, uh, you know, years ago that her family members had been killed in China, sent to labor camps or disappeared. And so she started um, basically speaking out about their story. Um, in fact, her sister left her this heart-wrenching voicemail um, right before she disappeared. Uh, in China. So this woman named uh, Michelle Jung, who lived in Vancouver at the time, started protesting in front of the consulate um, and started, you know, spreading the word, sharing her sister's story. And as and not soon, uh, not long after her car windows were smashed in. And she says that she had a, a terrifying man out banging on her apartment door, threatening her children through the door. Um, and then she says she discovered uh, uh, just a bunch of human feces dumped on her first floor apartment balcony. Um, and, you know, she strongly suspects, just given the timing, that this is connected to her activism. But, of course, the point, I guess, is that she has no proof of that, that this is anything to do with, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party or people who are opposed to her politics. Um, you know, we found cases where the link is clearer. Um, and I think, you know, most often, Scott, it's cases where um, someone's family members in China are threatened or effectively held hostage by Chinese police as a result of, you know, activism happening in Canada. Uh, but again, you know, it's hard to find evidence and it's hard to make a direct link. And I think for that reason, at least in part, it has been all too easy to ignore. I mean, a lot of these cases have been you know, reported to police over the years, and they just haven't, I guess, had evidence or the resources to 
prosecute them. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why, uh, it, you know, perhaps this hasn't been addressed. But clearly, through all the leaks in the media over recent weeks, I think, um, you know, these stories are getting uh, renewed attention these days. What can, uh, in, and we, we hear the, the reports of the Chinese Communist Party using uh, racism as a strategy because they know Canadians are sensitive to it, being a multicultural country and such. And, and many are wondering why uh, Chinese Canadians aren't speaking out, but they're fearful to speak out. What can they do? Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, obviously it's, that community is not a monolithic community, but yeah, so we, you know, hesitate to paint them all with the same brush. But like, there are yeah. a lot of members of that community who are absolutely terrified yeah. um, to speak out um, because they have family members still in China. And, you know, as journalists, right, we're in the business of trying to get people to talk to us about their experiences. And this is a very challenging beat in that regard because people do not want to go on the record because they have family members still in China. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's a very, you know, serious thing. And we've heard, um, you know, I, I interviewed Mehmet Todi, who's a Uyghur activist who lives in Ottawa, uh, who he escaped China and came to Canada uh, almost 30 years ago. And he's been, you know, very outspoken and his family has paid a very heavy price as a result. In fact, just in January, um, he was campaigning ahead of a vote by the federal government to accept 10,000 Uyghur refugees. And just before that vote, while he was campaigning, he received a phone call from a man who said he was a Chinese police officer who had some news about Mehmet Todi's family in China. Now, Mehmet Todi had the presence of mind to record that phone conversation, and he has since played that recording for us. And in that recording, you can hear this police officer mm. tell Mehmet Todi that his many of his family members are dead, that his, uh, his mother died, his sisters died, all allegedly from strokes even though his sisters were in their 40s and had previously been quite healthy. Then the police officer told Mehmet Todi that his uncle had also had a stroke but had not died and was in hospital. And then the officer put Mehmet Todi's uncle on the phone with him so he could speak with him directly, which he did. And his uncle then confirms this terrible news about Mehmet Todi's family members, that they are they had died in China. Mm. Uh, he hadn't spoken with them for a few years. And so, you know, for Mehmet Todi, that's a pretty clear message that, um, you know, not only, you know, have, does he believe his family members died as a result, um, you know, in part of his activism here and they're part of the Uyghur community in China, which is persecuted, of course, but also a clear message for him to basically stay silent. Um, and there's so many stories like that. I mean, there's so many stories of people as well whose family members are used, essentially held hostage in China unless they agree to spy on behalf mm -hmm. of Beijing. I mean, I spoke to a truck driver in Montreal who's part of the Uyghur community who says that Chinese police tried to get him to spy on Mehmet Todi and other activists, uh, or, you know, he wouldn't be allowed to see his family members. Back Unbelievable. In so, so many stories like this, Scott. Unbelievable stories. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Jeff Semple, senior broadcast digital journalist and senior correspondent with Global News. Incredible reporting, Jeff. Thanks for the stories. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. I remember very vividly. And, you know, you had to watch U.S. TV to see any coverage of this because it certainly wasn't being covered in Canada, even though it came down through uh, the territories and then into northern British Columbia, into northern uh, Alberta, and then out through the bottom of Saskatchewan and then into Montana. Then all of a sudden we heard about it because the U.S. news services covered it and then watched it sail all the way out to the coast and then eventually... Uh, uh, it was shot down 
uh, over the Carolinas talking about the big uh, Chinese balloon, spy balloon, whatever it was, weather balloon. Uh, many thought it was an overkill that uh, was just a, uh, a weather balloon that went off uh, astray. Uh, it turns out not the case. Uh, it was propelled. It could be steered. It would give uh, in information, military signals, collecting military signals and sending them uh, back to China as um, it was controlled through them and not a weather balloon. Uh, how does this change the discussion? By the way, China wants it back. Charles Burton with a senior fellow of the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Good to speak with you. So your thoughts, uh, Charles, on the fact this was not a weather balloon. It was, in fact, every, <laughs> what everybody thought it was. And, of course, Canada didn't even realize this till it was off into the States. What are your thoughts of what we're learning now? Well, I mean, it was it was a weather balloon. It was 200 feet high and had a payload equivalent to the size of two school buses hanging from it. So, you know, that would really get you a lot of uh, weather data. <laughs> I mean, evidently it was going across military bases doing donuts and figure eights until the Chinese figured out that the Americans were taking this much more seriously than you know, has been in the past, and they tried to put on the gas to get it off, you know, out out onto the East Coast and back to China, and uh, then the Americans shot it down over the sea just off the Carolinas, as you said, and then complained that, you know, we destroyed Chinese property and should pay compensation and send them back the pieces. So, you know, it's really like high comedy. I mean, this is like, you know, the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote kind of stuff. Mm. But the point is that, you know, Canada just doesn't have any capacity to defend our north from these ridiculous kinds of incursions. And I think the Chinese do it partially because they can. You know, they want to send a signal that, like, we we can control um, intelligence gathering all over the world if it's satellites or if it's uh, – if it's spy balloons, um, you know, and you should acknowledge that China is a great power and there's nothing you can do about it. In the meantime, they have all sorts of information about nuclear facilities and military facilities and and how rapidly the Canadians can respond to Chinese incursions. Obviously not very rapidly. Uh, that's of great use to them if if we get in a situation where there's coming conflict with China over Taiwan and, you know, it turns into a global conflict because Canada inevitably would be involved. Uh, we remember the visit by U.S. President Joe Biden. All of a sudden, blammo, the borders closed. How much of this uh, a flying object was the discussion? How much was that border? Because some downplayed it like it wasn't a big deal. Others are saying that's one of the main reasons they came up here was to s discuss the, the porous border. Well, I think that, that certainly the United States has a lot of concerns about Canada vis-a-vis -vis China. You know, they... When Blinken was here in October, uh, Secretary of State of the United States, uh, they announced a strategic dialogue between Canada and the United States on the Indo-Pacific. So it suggests the Americans have things they want to dialogue with us about that. And Biden announced that, you know, the first meeting of this dialogue had taken place just a few weeks before he arrived. I think in general, you know, there's concern that Canada talks a good line, but when it comes down to it, we're not allocating the resources or taking the policy measures necessary to deal with um, China's increasingly malign activities in North America. And this will affect our relationship with the United States. You know, it's intelligence sharing, but it's also the U.S. disappointment about Canada not getting our, our contribution 
uh, to uh, North American defense up to the two percent we promised, and uh, and our and our unwillingness to engage in serious policy measures to try and and uh, stop Chinese interference in our democratic process and the co-opting of decision makers. You know, we we can't get it together to have a foreign interference transparency scheme act. I think because there are too many Canadians that are in China's pocket that don't want that exposed. Hmm. And the Americans see that. And it, I mean, it could impact on all sorts of things. Are they going to give us a buy on their buy America if they feel that Canada just isn't a reliable partner? You know, it has all sorts of implications, none of them good for our country. Charles, we've been talking about this, it seems, for years now. And another issue we've been uh, talking about for years is the effect that this has on Chinese Canadians that are coming here like all immigrants for a better life and are being harassed uh, by Chinese Communist Party back home with their friends, family, or even Chinese police here. Just uh, chatted with Jeff, uh, Jeff Semple from Global News, who's got a great series on this on Global Right Now, who've actually talked to uh, Canadians, uh, Chinese Canadians, about this. Are we now finally listening? Listening to this story, and we've only got about thirty seconds left. Yeah, uh, sorry, but are we finally acknowledging that we've got a problem here? I think we've acknowledged we have a problem, but the government doesn't seem prepared to do anything about it. Just a lot of talk about we need consultations and maybe it'll lead to further racism or something. But what we really need is to expel the Chinese diplomats who are harassing our Canadians here in Canada and to arrest the agents of the Chinese regime involved in this activity. And that is still not happening. Is Russia or sorry, is China using racism as a strategy on Canada? Absolutely. You know, they, they want to give the impression that there's pervasive racism against people of Chinese origin, and therefore they should be loyal to the motherland. In other words, not the country of their citizenship, but the country of their ancestry and serve the Chinese Communist Party in whatever way, whether it's acting as proxies for illegal campaign contributions to China-friendly political candidates or engaging in espionage to get, you know, military technologies out of Canada into China. This is very ugly business. And we're just not standing up strongly enough to defend our Chinese Canadians from harassment by a hostile foreign power. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald laurie Institute. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to speak with you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, the federal government's reaction to allegations of foreign interference, as well as the talk of needing to update policy and procedure around such things, continues uh, to be scrutinized. Stephen Chase is with us, senior parliamentary reporter for The Globe and Mail. His latest, along with Robert Fife, Ottawa stalls on measures to combat foreign interference. The first paragraph, for more than nine months, Liberal government has been eyeing a package of measures that could be instrumental in safeguarding Canadian democracy from foreign interference instigated by hostile states such as China, but so far has only moved ahead on one item to talk more about all of this. Stephen Chase, parliamentary reporter for The Globe and Mail with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, glad to be here. So, Stephen, why the foot dragging here? I remember even a while ago, Katie Telford was supposed to testify and such. Nothing ever came of that at this point. Why are they dragging their feet here? Because it appears the more they do it, the more they look like they're guilty, they're hiding something, or they're benefiting from it. Well, I don't think people knew about the extent of what they have been considering, and so therefore I wasn't really able to hold them to account. Now we know. Uh, and now we're going to be asking a lot more questions. So last summer, you know, cabinet uh, went over and approved a whole suite of measures to 
to deal with foreign interference, or what they call hostile, you know, foreign state interference. And uh, but they sort of uh, they've been on the slow train. They've been slow walks since then. And in fact, uh, I can go through the four of them. Uh, one of them, of course, was the Foreign Influence Registry to keep track of people who are paid uh, or reimbursed in some way by foreign states to uh, change policy in Canada. Uh, that one only went ahead in the sort of uh, last few weeks when Mr. Trudeau said he was going to begin consultations on that. But in fact, that was part of a package that was approved nine months ago. But it has basically been stalled. Uh, there's been opposition to it within the government. The other parts of the package were uh, making more explicit uh, offenses in the criminal code for foreign interference, so making it more ex- more explicit charges effectively. So, for instance, and this isn't one we know is, is the case, but an example would be making a criminal offense to help a foreign power. Thirdly, there was uh, efforts to update the CSIS Act to make to give CSIS um, the power to speak more plainly and openly about threats, because that is a real problem, uh, former CSIS uh, officials tell us. And fourthly, some updates. And the fourth one was updates to the Security Information Act. Uh, but these have all sort of been sitting on a shelf uh, for many months. And uh, we understand that there is opposition inside the government. Some people inside the government are concerned about handing too much power to security agencies or handing more power to it. So this is stalling within the government itself, which seems odd because it's meant to try to defend the government, is it not? It's meant to try to defend the uh, Canadian state from foreign uh uh, mm. foreign uh, threats and for, for, for foreign interference, but there is a difference of opinion within the Liberal Party, the governing party, about this. Um, you know, uh, without, I can't, you know, speak for them, but I, I would guess there's a civil liberty aspect, civil libertarian aspect to it, that why would we be giving or making uh, more laws uh, and giving the civil, giving the CSIS and, and, and other agencies more ways to go after people. Uh, so I think that to the extent I can, I can determine what's going on in terms of the opposition. I, I think it's about uh, some kind of, you know, ideological opposition to giving, to, to sort of essentially creating more laws uh, that would aid uh, security services. Uh, just today alone, we've been talking. There's the report out about uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party weather balloon slash spy balloon. That in fact, yes, it was gathering military information. It was actually steerable, all that sort of stuff. That's one story. Jeff Semple from Global News today interviewing series of Chinese Canadians about how their lives are being affected here by the Chinese Communist Party. It seems that every day or so, there's more and more information coming out about this. Does it seem to be res? resonating with Canadians, uh, even though it doesn't seem to be speeding up government at all. I think it really is resonating with Canadians. And I guess we are a nation of immigrants, and many people are from uh, areas that either China controls or from China itself. People from Hong Kong, people from Tibet, people from Taiwan, people from um, from uh, Xinjiang, the, the sort of the region that's currently being where they're being oppressed. Uh, there are many people here who are tired of being bullied and intimidated and manipulated. And I think that that is uh, something which Canadians are realizing we have to do more uh, to deal with. And we have um, former heads of our security services, like Dick Fadden, Richard Fadden, talking about that. Uh, and so I think, it, yeah, there's a, a bit of an awakening. And I just want to say that Australia went through, through this kind of, you know, societal debate about uh, essentially five or six, seven years ago. So we're they're a lot closer in proximity to the um, a newly aggressive Chinese state. We're much farther away, and I think we're just we're on delay here.
is the debate over or have we got the, uh, have we got there but we just haven't made any any gains we haven't found any solutions yet are we there or we're there we're just waiting for somebody to to set we're, a course we're in a situation where the i think the the government of the day and some of the people in the security agencies are very defensive and feeling defensive and the message is oh there's nothing wrong this is just run of the mill stuff we can handle it but there's many other people saying no you aren't handling it you aren't working. You aren't doing this, and we are subject to foreign meddling, as the Global Mail has, has, has basically detailed over the last few months. So we're in the middle of a debate. The government and some people in the government bureaucracy are defensive and are saying there's nothing to see here. Uh, Trudeau has punted the issue to uh, uh, former Governor General uh, David Johnson, a family friend of his, to look into the issue and to tell him if there's really a problem that needs to be dealt with here. Uh, Mr. Johnson is supposed to make his first report, not his final report, in May, in which he's expected at that point to, rec- to recommend or to uh, basically sink the idea of a public inquiry, which is what all three opposition parties have called for. Uh, considering it seems that there is conflict or certainly not on the same page between government and CSIS, whether it's the RCMP, what they can share, what they can't share. Um, it, it certainly, and, and you can look way back to the, to the, the freedom convoy and, and the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. Yep. Uh, it does there not seem to be a need for a plan here where everybody is rowing in the same direction? I think so. When you're hitting on something that's really important in the United States and other countries, the the agency which does domestic surveillance works hand in hand with the agent with police agencies so that they can collect evidence to a standard that is can be used in court. Right now, CSIS is essentially the world's biggest secret reporting service. They find out all kinds of things. They write reports and then they get ignored. If we, in other countries, they'd be working with a police with with police with you know, who normally collect information to an evidentiary standard that can be used in court. We should be talking about doing that in this country. We should be talking about the different agencies working together to collect information that can be used to prosecute people and not sort of working separately. Stephen Chase with us, senior parliamentary reporter for The Globe and Mail and the latest uh, crafting measures to combat foreign interference in The Globe. Stephen, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Federal government exploding. Uh, $30 billion since 2019. Uh, record growth to the public service. We got uh, a lot of people being hired by the government uh, during the last couple of years. And Dr. Ian Lee from uh, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, with us uh, now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks very much, Scott. Doing very well. All right. Uh, a couple of things here. The size of uh, the government, the uh, par- uh, parliamentary budget officer saying that uh, things have really uh, blown up. The government has increased in size. Is this all due to the pandemic? Well, it occurred. Um, if you look at the size of government, the government of Canada, which was not a shrinking violet, by the way. I mean, the government of Canada is very substantial. Uh, and I'm talking before the pandemic in 2019, um, uh, although it was downsized by Harper, uh, excuse me, by uh, Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Chrétien. I wrote a couple of papers on that downsizing um, and they brought it down to much uh, more uh, sustainable levels. Uh, but then it started to grow after uh, Mr. Trudeau was elected in 2015. 
but then it really took off uh, during uh, the pandemic. Just to give you a very big picture number, in, in 2020, 2020, which was when the pandemic arrived in Canada in March, the government was spending, the federal government of Canada was spending 300 billion a year. This year, uh, the government's budget is uh, showing about 400 billion. So in the space of three years, not not a decade, not, you know, three years, the government went from 300 billion to 400 billion. Now, are we really, do we really believe that in 2020, we were treated, being treated very, very badly, very, very poorly, uh, weren't, weren't getting enough government services when the government was spending 300 billion. And now they're spending yeah, a lot more. And the irony is all of the stories about, you know, delays in passports and delays in various government uh, services, it doesn't suggest that we're getting a huge increase in the productivity or the deliverables of the public service. So I, I'm, I'm very skeptical, uh, the PBO director was too, by the way, that these increases were, were justified or necessary. What about the amount of bodies that it has been hired over that period? The numbers are, I mean, they're really, really staggering. I mean, How do you hire like, people during a pandemic, though? Well, you can. I mean, you can do it virtually. There's a lot of uh, onboarding, so-called onboarding. That's the new buzzword, by the way, where you bring an employee in. And I have friends in the private sector and in government where you can onboard them, bring them in virtually. I mean, the pandemic really did accelerate the whole idea of the digitization of everything. You can interview yeah. people. We in the university interview people now online. Uh, we process all their documentation digitally. Uh, but um, uh, and so it, it can be done. But I uh, just to give you, I wanted before I forget your question. They added thirty one thousand public servants. Like this is this is yeah. enormous. This is really really enormous. And and I just want to mention one thing before we get away from this uh, onto uh, additional subjects. I was arguing from the get-go, from 2020, that uh, when Mr. Trudeau said, uh, "There's, uh, you know, we gotta uh, have uh, minimal uh, checks and balances on the issuing of the funds because it was urgent that we get the money out," he said, yeah. "because it, you know, it takes time, and so we're gonna put it out with minimal due diligence checks." And I argued at the time that they could have done that; they they could have set it up as they're now doing, by the way, with the so-called grocery refund by mm. simply. Um, doing uh, a negative income tax. The CRA has incredible data on all of us because we file our tax returns. They know where we live. They know how much we make, how many dependents we have. They know our bank account. And they could have simply told the minister responsible, the CRA, reverse the flow. Everybody who makes uh, from last year's tax filing makes under X income, 80,000 a year, 50,000 a year, 100,000 a year, send them a check for 2,000 a month for the next 90 days, we'll reassess that 90 days. They could have done that without hiring anybody because it's all the infrastructure is there. The CRA mm. tax infrastructure is there. The database is there. They have 30 million. I looked this up. CRA publishes this data. They have the data on 30 million Canadians. That's basically every living, breathing adult Canadian. There's only 38 million Canadians in total. And so my point is that it was this, this was unnecessary. The, this, this whole ballooning of the public service was not necessary. They could have distributed the money even more quickly by using the tax, I call it the database or infrastructure, and just simply crediting bank accounts of anybody whose filing of the year before was below a certain threshold income determined mm. by the cabinet. 
and they could have done it without hiring a, 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 a hiring a very they maybe they would have need, needed a small number but the at the mar it's just a reprogramming of the system and i know people at cra by the way and they they've now they've developed this system over many many years and spent an enormous amount of money developing it good for them but my point is people don't realize how efficient our tax system our tax system is and as i said that when they say they didn't know who to give it to that's not true the cra has awesome data i'm sure my joke is that the spies at csis go home every night and cry themselves to sleep saying why can't we have all the data that the <laughs> cra has we have to hire spies to go out and get this data cra has it on 30 million canadians where we live how much we make whether we're married divorced children investments real estate the whole nine yards and they and they know our bank account too by the way so it'd be very easy to credit the money. That's exactly what they're doing now, by the way, with that so-called grocery uh, rebate through the yeah. uh, HSD rebate system. All right, Dr. Ian Lee with us. We didn't even get to the carbon tax that was supposed to be neutral. We'll hit that next time. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate yes. Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Um, can I, this is kind of bizarre. And it's bizarre because I thought there was a poll that said 70% of Canadians or thereabouts uh, wanted a public inquiry into the election interference uh, allegations. Uh, a new poll from Ipsos. Uh, Canadians are split whether the federal government recently announced probes into the allegations of foreign interference or a cover-up or an effort to get at the truth. The Ipso conducted for global news uh, 52% of those surveyed think the probes and the appointment of the special rapporteur uh, to oversee them are genuine 48% meanwhile think the investigation is a cover up Sean Simpson with us VP of Ipsos Public Affairs and with us now Sean thanks for the time I hope you're well I am thank you How do you explain this Sean is this it seems like it's just along party lines uh, it doesn't matter what's good for candidates what's good for the party or the team you're rooting for yeah, we're we're quite divided uh, on this topic, and you know, you cited other polls that suggest people want a public inquiry, and I suppose this is supposed to be the first step to determine whether one is even right. needed, and that uh, former Governor uh, General David Johnston is is uh, ultimately going to be the one to recommend it or not. Uh, but in the meantime, um, Canadians are split on its purpose. Uh, half at 52% say that the investigation is 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 sincere, that Justin Trudeau wants to get to the truth and understand what happens and will, you know, abide by the recommendations and that, uh, you know, the governor general, the former governor general is uh, an unbiased party in the matter. The other half, of course, say uh, it's just a cover up, uh, you know, essentially believing that uh, if there was Chinese interference, that, you know, this is is a whole song and dance to show that, in fact, there wasn't or if there, if, if there was that the Liberal Party was unaware of it and, you know, not complicit in, in, in the whole thing. So completely uh, split down the line, 50-50, one way or the other. Is this because of David Johnston's appointment to this? I mean, you're probably never going to find somebody who's going to say a bad word about him. However, um, it, it still is a friend of his, and there is a connection here. Do you think this is a direct result of this? He's such a loved guy. Yes, we believe him. Or, you know, it doesn't matter how much you're loved, you, you still can't have a connection there is this where the where where the backbone of this lies 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the other thing is the nature of it. You, you know, what the heck is a special reporter, right? What, what is this What is this whole thing supposed to do? Is it, in fact, arm's length from the prime minister? And then, as you said, you know, David Johnson is, is you know, considered by many to be beyond reproach. But, you know, it's all about optics. And there are some weird optics here, right? He's had a couple of appointments from... Uh, Justin Trudeau, you know, sitting on the Trudeau Foundation, all of, all of these things, which can cause one to question the optics and whether or not, uh, you know, due to unconscious bias and all these things, he is the best fit for the job. So there's just a whole lot of, of unanswered questions here. Why do this instead of an inquiry? What, you know, why choose him instead of somebody else? And it's causing a lot of people to sort of question the authenticity of the, of the whole thing. And even, you know, when we look along party lines, yes, it's, it's generally split along party lines. But even among liberal voters, one in five question the motives, mm. right? So yeah, even if your own supporters are wondering whether uh, this is actually an authentic and, and, and real desire to get to the truth, then, you know, something smells fishy there, doesn't it? Um, uh, do you think that people just don't want to believe that this is going on? Do you think people just um, maybe aren't following it? Um, but that being said, it seems like evidence is mounting pretty much as a story every day. There is the story the balloon came out today that, in fact, it was spying. It wasn't a weather balloon. And it seems to be creating more and more divisiveness on that divide for, um, you know, between political parties and such. Mm-hmm. Do you think people just maybe just don't want to believe this? Well, I, 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 they probably don't want to believe it, but at the same time, I think they are curious and want to get to the heart of the matter, which is why, as you said, other polls are showing that people are supporting a public inquiry. That's not going to happen yet. You know, uh, uh, the former governor general will recommend to the prime minister whether or not that, that should happen. 48% of Canadians say that they're following the issue. It's actually fairly high for a, you know, political issue. Um, you know, not everybody kind of leans in on the, these kinds of things. Um, and, and I, the, the, the more that you're paying attention, the more likely you are to believe that uh, this, uh, uh, you know, special rapporteur um, assignment is is not genuine. That it's just, uh, you know, Trudeau trying to deflect or cover up or, or whatever the case may be. Um, Canadians want to get to the bottom of the issue. They want to know whether or not there is there has been interference, but they're not entirely convinced that this is the way to go about doing it. Uh, is this story growing or is it fading? Oh, I think it's growing again as we learn more and and and, and more news comes to light uh, as it perhaps becomes even more political. You know, and one of the things that we need to look at is is even more the conservative voters, block voters, many Quebecers are skeptical about uh, the direction of this particular um, uh, decision from the prime minister. This is an area where the prime minister needs to improve his standing. Um, And so far, this doesn't appear to be all that helpful in that endeavor. It's interesting, Sean. What if the governor, former governor general was to say, no, we don't need a public inquiry. Man, where would this go from here? Well, you know, reaction to that from the opposition benches would be would be visceral, um, you know. And then, of course, on the other hand, the liberals will stand up for the former governor general and say, you know, he's a man of integrity, which, of course, he is. Um, So it's going to be one of those sort of 
situations where no nobody wins. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's hard to, to 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 know what the prime minister is going to uh, end up doing with it. I guess he he's promised to abide by whatever recommendations uh, Mr. Johnston lays out, but it's hard to see an an apolitical or non-political you know way for this to move forward. Sean Simpson with us, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Uh, Canadian split on the rapporteur and the investigation. Is it enough? Some say, yep. Others say, nope. And it pretty much seems to be falling along party lines. All right. Uh, we've been watching the, you know, I, I kind of um, watching it yesterday and today kind of reminded me of watching the uh, first space uh, space shuttle land when we're watching the plane come in. And then once the car started driving around, it kind of looked like the O.J. Simpson slow motion chase and stuff. And then, of course, when he left the courthouse, it was kind of like watching Elvis leave the building. Uh, quite a spectacle. I'm not sure what all was accomplished uh, and where this goes moving forward uh, in the Donald Trump show that we've been witnessing for the last few years uh former president donald trump pleading not guilty to 34 counts uh including falsified business records and appearing in a manhattan courtroom today to talk more about this thane rosenbaum with us distinguished university professor truro college director of the forum on life culture and society nyu and legal analyst with cbs news radio and with us now thane thanks for the time hope you're well very much you so you're so gracious scott thank you so much thanks for asking oh, so- about me uh, Thane, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch this. I'm certainly not a fan of Donald Trump. He's a divisive man. I think the Republicans can do a lot better than what, uh, than what he can do. That being said, all of this over the, uh, case around the porn star and such and falsifying records, uh, obviously with the subject matter, it makes it more, um, titillating and exciting for lack of big, uh, better phrases. But many are surprised like this is what they're taking Donald Trump to court for. Does that have any validity or is this just the first of many dominoes to fall well scott it depends on who you ask right so Hmm. you know this country is so polarized that for people who you know are hate donald trump the porn star case is fine it's you know perfectly adequate this is falsification of business records there's a felony that somehow attaches to this uh you know he, he should be punished for something and it might as well be this but, you know, there are also other people uh, who just think, you know, this is the porn star case. Uh, this is not a divorce action. Uh, this case precedes his presidency. Um, it's not even clear uh, whether it's a crime, <laughs> you know, in the, in the United States. You know, even settlements between parties often ends with uh, non-disclosure agreements. In return for you cashing this check, you won't speak about this. That's how settlements are conducted in the United States. And people enter into non-disclosure agreements all the time. Um, you know, the, the government, the burden that they have now is they have to prove that the sole purpose of these monthly payments was to evade campaign finance laws. That's its sole purpose. That was his intent and his motive. I think that's a tough thing to prove. You know, it's far more likely a jury might conclude that what his main purpose was was to to avoid embarrassment to save his marriage and not feel humiliated in front of the entire country it was his own money he wasn't using campaign finances that he 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 uh uh collected so again it's a tough case to win and this happened years a few years ago with john edwards very similar he had a child out of wedlock 
And the jury did not conclude that the payments represented an undisclosed campaign violation, a finance violation. They thought it was something else, that he was simply embarrassed. Uh, outside of the courtroom, his uh, legal team holding a news conference, um, impromptu news conference, and said basically if it was anybody else, we wouldn't even be here. Is that accurate? It's a good question. You know, I wonder what Canadians think. If Donald Trump, and you're a guy who just said, I don't even like him. If Donald Trump had left the White House quietly and retired to uh, Palm Beach to play golf and and never attempted to, re- to, uh, to, to once again run for re-election, uh, would this case have been brought? Uh, you know, remember, there are a number of cases that are being investigated that are at various stages of development. This is the first one that was brought. But some of them, like, for instance, the Mar-a-Lago documents, the classified documents, one, Scott, you know, that involves the Espionage Act, right? That sounds like a lot more important than the porn star case, right? So there's these other cases, even in the New York uh, Manhattan DA's office, there was an earlier case that this district attorney chose not to bring, which involved uh, ta- tax, bank, and insurance fraud that Donald Trump had inflated his assets to get more favorable bank loans and insurance policies. That case was ready to go. The district attorney didn't want to bring it. The two prosecutors uh, uh, left the office in protest. And uh, two years later, they brought the porn star case, right? So Mm. it's not, it's a fair question to ask. Is this the one, is this the one that the country really feels strongly about? And that was my point, Thane, is like we're hearing so much from various experts that this is only the first one, that there's still all this and the stuff in Georgia and and blah, 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 post-election, even January 6th. Why would you start here? Because you're kind of making a mockery of the whole process. And Scott, let me tell you, well, here's something I'm thinking, and I've been saying it for the last few weeks. You know, given the fact that Donald Trump is now convincing America that he's that this is purely a political persecution and it's he's not necessarily wrong in his in in that claim right is it likely that while this case is proceeding we're going to get indictments in atlanta and washington dc at the same time are we going to try to make donald trump hop from atlanta to new york to washington dc in federal court and in state court that's all he's going to do and and his base is going to be okay with that Right. I mean, where has that ever happened? So what I'm suggesting is it may be that the porn star case freezes the other cases, the ones that you suspect are not a bit more legitimate, but seem to suggest a more higher level of criminality. Right. In terms of what, you know, want to prosecute him for the worst thing that he's done. I'm not sure these other cases are going to proceed while this one is in law in play. And if that's the case, then the whole hmm. thing comes down to the porn star case. So, wow, that's a whole other, whole other aspect. Uh, how do both Republicans and Democrats distance themselves from this? I mean, obviously, there's a certain amount of support from Republicans. But then if it goes south, they're going to cut bait. Uh, Democrats, on the other hand, when it's looking kind of silly, they're the ones that look like they're behind it, even though it's the New York district attorney and such. So how, how do you uh, I'm sure there must be a certain amount of people in, in Washington they just say, can we just make this whole thing go away and start over? You know, Scott, I had assumed that uh, Democratic leaders had called uh, Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, over the last two weeks and said, please don't do this. <laughs> mm. Don't do this. Just don't. Please don't. Or how about this? 
Do you want to be remembered as the guy that reelected Donald Trump, right? Is that what you want your legacy to be? Don't do this. Let the other cases go forward. But, you know, prosecutors, I can't speak for Canada, but in the United States, prosecutors don't bring cases unless they're going to win. They don't want to see these cases blow up in their faces. But this is a very strange case, Scott. It seems like, you know, this is a progressive uh, district attorney in a very blue state, in a very blue city, very progressive city. And he might have said, you know what? I don't even have to win this thing. I just have to bring it. I need to fingerprint this guy. I want to take some photos of the guy. I want to be the first guy to prosecute Donald Trump, even if we don't win. Now, that's a, you know, interesting position, but it's it's a compromising position, right? It doesn't make the Democrats look good and it galvanizes Republicans and it will drive Donald Trump's base wild. Thane Rosenbaum with us, Distinguished University Professor, Truro College, Director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, NYU Legal Analyst with CBS News Radio. Hopefully we'll chat again, Thane. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Be well, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. He is coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I've been trying not to talk a lot about Donald Trump, but man, it seems to be everywhere. It's like watching, I think it's like a combination of watching when we saw his plane coming in. I, I thought, wow, it's like watching, watching the first shuttle land way back in the eighties. And then watching the cars drive around, it was like watching uh, OJ Simpson's slow motion chase. And then when he left the, uh, the building, it was kind of like Elvis has left the building. And man, he was on that plane up and out in no time. If we could only get that kind of service from Air Canada, my goodness. Uh, your thoughts on this whole exercise? <laughs> if it was Air Canada, he would be here till next Thursday, and then his luggage would have been lost. Um, yeah, he, he look, would have lost his carry-on by now. Who, where's uh, the KFC? It, it, We've lost the bucket of KFC. The, the, the th- one of the things that really was front of mind today as I was sort of on and off paying attention to it was you realize how much the cable news shows have desperately missed Donald oh. Trump. Their ratings oh God, went completely yeah. into the toilet when he left office. They, you know, it's so ironic that that uh, stations like CNN and MSNBC so I'm desperately want watch- him gone. I know I'm watching CTV, man. It was the same thing. It's like if I was tuning to CTV, it's like the same as watching CNN. It was wall to wall coverage. Yep. I, you yep. know, only those, Global those wasn't stations- showing it all the time. Those stations wanted him gone and the way, you know, the coverage and and it's fine. I mean, look, politics is politics. But then once he was gone and their ratings started to come in, they realized, wait a second, we uh, we may not like Donald Trump. We may not like what he stands for. But you know what? We really need Donald Trump because right now this other guy who most days looks like he doesn't even know what planet he's on is not doing it for us. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. All right, let me on that note because it's, it points to a divisive America. Uh, oh, we yeah. just had we just had on uh, sorry Sean Simpson from Ipsos saying that fifty two percent of Canadians feel that um, the special rapporteur will be fine and it's all genuine here, and forty eight percent think it's all a, a cover up. So there we are, split right down the middle on party lines. We are, we're not even listening to the facts anymore. It's just whatever team you want to uh, you want to side with, you're, you're going to jump on. So are we any less divided than they are? 
So why do we need a special rapporteur then if we've already decided who's right and who's wrong in this and what's gone on? Well, I mean, let's save the money. Let's save Dave Johnson, his, his reputation. Let's save all of us going through a report and hearing about it and fighting about it later. We've already decided. So let's just go with it then and just say, fine, you know what? Uh, China may or may not have intervened in our elections. If you think it did, it did. If you think it didn't, it didn't. What's next? That's a good point. How many of these do we have to do? How many round in circles do we have? And to is anybody, the, and Scott, of the fifth, what did you say, 52%? 52 to 48. Good? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of the 52 who right now say that it's fine, how many of those will change their mind regardless what David Johnson comes up with? I, I Make a note today. Write it mm. down today. 52 to 48. And when the first poll comes out after his report comes out, I bet you that it's within two percentage points of that. It's amazing that, you, you know, to think of that, considering how big an issue this is and how every day the evidence just keeps to, seems to keep mounting, that team politics, we're more interested in defending our team than we are our own damn country. Yeah, but as I say, write it down, because I will bet you that when this thing, when this report comes out, it'll either be 50-50 or 54-46 or something in between there that it will just mm. – nobody's mind is going to be changed based on what you just said. If you already believe David Johnson, who we all now know has a relationship with the prime minister, and whether you think that he is entirely independent and able to put that aside or not, that's part of the whole politics thing here. That is – you've already decided – and, and it's fine. You've decided one way or another, but everybody has already decided. And I just don't think there's any likelihood that those people are going to be swayed unless we're all shocked and a report comes back saying something so absolutely and entirely outrageous that we couldn't even imagine what it might be at this point. Maybe then, maybe then something changes. But otherwise, Scott, I just, this whole thing seems to me now to be a giant exercise in getting right back to where we started. That's a valid point. Uh, funny, though, when we're seeing this falling along party lines, yet over 70% over seventy of us think that something's going on. So the majority of Canadians, the majority of Canadians think something's going on and they're suspicious about it, but they're still split on, you know, whether it's all we're going to get to the bottom of it or not. Because, because your point and, and, and your point is 100 percent correct, Scott, and that is we all are on a team now and we have, you know, we, we point to the Americans and go, oh, man, their system, they're so screwed up. We are really not far. We rarely are. We're rarely yeah. far behind. Yep. And it, yet it may be a different kind of screwed up. But we are in the same position where we have now dug our he heels into the sand on one team or the other, and we're not moving. We're not That's moving. And and, and honestly, like my dad grew up working for one of the political parties as a volunteer. By the end of yeah. his life, he did not support that party at all. Isn't and I'll tell you what, nowadays, I don't hear of anybody that changes sides. You're born with it, you stay with yeah. it, and that's the way it goes. Interesting point. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Thank you, Scott. Have a good show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.